Well, this morning, I have a list of comments on the subject of love, and they all come from kids. Here are real opinions from real kids about the thrills and chills of love. Here's why love occurs between a man and a woman, from a little girl named May, age nine. No one is sure, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. On what is falling in love or what falling in love is like, John, age nine, he informs us, it's like an avalanche where you run for your life. Glenn, age seven, he adds, if falling in love is like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. (laughs) On the importance of love, Greg, age eight, love is the most important thing, but baseball's pretty good too. Here are a few general opinions about love. Floyd, age eight, puts it, love is foolish, but I still might want to try it sometime. A little girl, Regina, age 10, comments on love. I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. You single people, please perk up. Here are a couple of surefire ways to make a person fall in love with you. Alonzo, age 9, suggests, don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. Here's a suggestion from nine-year-old Bart. One way is to take the girl out to eat. Make sure it's something she likes to eat. French fries usually works for me. (laughs) And what about a few love songs for the person you love? Will, age seven, he would sing, Hey baby, I don't like girls, but I'm willing to forget you are one. (laughs) And what about eight-year-old Larry, his song, You are my darling, even though you also know my sister. Finally, a few suggestions on how to make love last. Aaron, age eight, offers some important advice. Don't forget your wife's name. That'll mess up the love. (laughs) Dave, age eight, he says, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. And lastly, Natalie, age nine, she offers her wisdom. Don't say you love somebody, then change your mind. Love isn't like picking what movie you want to watch. And all these are profound statements indeed. Yet as insightful as kids are on the subject of love, the most profound statement on love comes from God. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. It describes God's love for us and the love that He wants us to have for one another. It shows us what real love looks like. Now remember, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are the two great chapters on spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 compares the church to a body and stresses our connectedness to one another. Chapter 14 is, as we'll discover, is the Bible's fullest explanation for the vocal gifts prophecy, and tongues. But sandwiched in between these two chapters, 1 Corinthians 13 addresses what the Corinthians lacked most. Believers in this church were short on love. At the close of chapter 12, Paul encourages them to desire 
spiritual gifts. Desire the best gifts, he says. Spiritual gifts are good gifts. Every believer can benefit from the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But gifts are not the most important issue in the life of the church. There is, as Paul puts it, a more excellent way. The greatest of God's gifts to the body of Christ is love. Let's read this chapter on love, and then we'll go back through it verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You can live in Athens and be a Georgia Tech fan. You can be a Democrat and vote for a Republican. You can work at Coca-Cola and on occasion drink a Pepsi. I'm sure it happens. It's an anomaly when it does. It's definitely out of character. It's peculiar, but it's possible. And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped with spiritual gifts, charismatic to the core, yet still be selfish and carnal. It's a travesty when it occurs. It's not right. It's peculiar, but it's possible. And sadly, the Corinthians were proof their church lacked love. In fact, in Corinth, spiritual gifts had become a substitute for love. Christians were all about flaunting their gift, rattling off in tongues, and looking spiritual, more so than loving their brother and sister in Christ. Paul tells them in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass, or a clanging symbol. There are four words in the Greek language that get translated into English by our one word, love. Eros is romantic or erotic love. Storge is familial love. It's the love of a parent and a child. Phileo is brotherly love. It's shared by friends. But the word translated here is agape, 
or God's love. It is the giving, unselfish, sacrificial love with which God has loved us. In chapter 12, Paul was speaking of spiritual gifts. And the gift that the Corinthians were most enamored with was the speaking in unknown tongues. It's a supernatural means to pray or to praise God. Here Paul refers to the tongues of men and of angels. Apparently tongues isn't just a human language. It can also be an angelic language. Apparently angels have their own language. In chapter 14, we'll learn about this exciting gift of tongues. But note Paul's point here in chapter 13. Any divine language without divine love is just noise. Think of a toddler with a wooden spoon banging on grandma's pots and pans. That's what their speaking in tongues was to God if it wasn't accompanied by love. One author writes, People of little religion are always noisy. He who has not the love of God in man filling his heart is like an empty wagon coming violently down a hill. It makes a great noise because there is nothing in it. Without love, our wagon is just empty. And he says in verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. A person with a gift of prophecy acts as God's oracle, his mouthpiece. He or she speaks a word conveyed spiritually by God himself. What an honor to be used in such a way. But if a message from God is delivered absent of love, though the message stands, the person speaking it forfeits his or her reward. Without love, we're nothing. And the same is true with the gift of faith. Even mountain-moving faith is no substitute for God's love. You can have a juiced-up faith, a faith strong enough to bench-press Stone Mountain. But unless your faith is coupled with God's love, it's nothing in God's sight. And the same is true of tremendous shows of sacrifice. Notice verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I mean, who can question the commitment of a monk or a martyr? Say I go home today, I sell my house, hold a big garage sale, unload all my stuff, And then I move into a monastery and donate all the proceeds to feed the poor. Hey, if I do it to earn God's favor or to show off my tremendous piety and not out of a love for God or a love for other people, then all my sacrifices, all my do-goodedness are meaningless to God. He could care less. Or what if I demonstrated a martyr's courage, traveled to Iran, preach Jesus on a street corner, call for the Ayatollah to convert, end up beheaded or burned. And if my actions weren't motivated by love for Jesus and love for people, as far as God was concerned, I would have been better off spending a few weeks at the beach. Love, not just loss, is what pleases God. And and this is one of the many issues that sets Christianity apart from Islam. A Muslim who fights the infidel and dies a martyr supposedly earns the favor of Allah. He's afforded special treatment in the afterlife, not the least of which are conjugal rights to 72 virgins. Whereas a Christian can die a martyr 
and end up displeasing to God unless he loved, not just fought. His sacrifice means nada. Love is the more excellent way. Years ago, Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond, he wrote a short pamphlet that he intended to be read by missionaries. He writes to instruct folks who are headed to a foreign land. He says, you can take nothing greater to the heathen world than the impress and reflection of the love of God upon your own character. That is the universal language. It will take you years to speak Chinese or the Indian dialects, but from the day you land, the language of love, understood by all, will pour forth its unconscious eloquence. For the man who is the missionary, it is not his words, but his character that is the message. Even when contrasted with spiritual gifts, even mountain-moving faith, even extreme acts of charity and sacrifice, compared to it all, the one Christian virtue that is most powerful, that is most effective, is love. Love is the more excellent way. But what does this real love look like? And in the next few verses, Paul gives us a full, a vivid description of this agape love. He lists love's attributes. Verse 4, love suffers long. Genuine love is more than just a pleasant feeling. In contrast, it's the willingness to undergo suffering, to endure hardship for someone else. Jesus, of course, was the classic example of a love that suffered long. He suffered with His disciples and He went the distance. You don't hear Jesus say to His men, Okay, guys, you got one last chance. Forsaking me in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's one thing, but you better stand up for me in Pilate's judgment hall. You don't hear Him saying that. Imagine if Jesus had taken the scourging and then got to the cross and said, Wait, you can beat me, but no nails. That's as far as I go. No way. God's love has no limits, no borders, no barriers. His love suffers long. Love bears with a person's burden as long as that burden needs to be bared. Love never quits. I'll never forget an interview I heard one day on Focus on the Family Radio. They were talking to a lady who had been diagnosed with an untreatable cancer. Doctors had given this lady a choice. One doctor said she could live out the rest of her days on the beaches of Acapulco, just enjoying the little bit of life she had left. Another doctor said that she can undergo rounds of brutal, grueling chemotherapy and radiation with the slight hope of lengthening her life a few years. This brave lady chose to extend her life, if only for a day. She wrote this letter to her three small children. I have chosen to survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor and moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this, if only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer. And that minute could be the one you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. And that's love that suffers long. This is what Paul meant when he began to describe these attributes of love. Love suffers long. And love is kind. It's, it's not mean. It's not harsh. 
You know, a person can definitely frustrate my love, but love should never react by throwing down ultimatums and making demands. Love stays tender. It doesn't push. Instead, it pulls and it leads. Its urgings and proddings are always respectful. Love does not envy. Love never covets a blessing God chooses for someone else. In other words, love reads the name tags on the gifts before it takes them. And it's happy for the person who gets a nicer gift. Love does not parade itself. Love doesn't show off or create a spectacle or try to attract attention to oneself. You know, it was said of Teddy Roosevelt that he had a personality that filled up the room. He had a bigger-than-life persona. The comment was made, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. I've met a lot of people who were like that. And yet the opposite of that kind of attitude is love. Love is content to join and march in someone else's parade. And it's not puffed up. It's not inflated. Love is humble. The person who loves doesn't have a big head or an inflated sense of their own importance. Love doesn't mind picking up a towel and washing someone's dirty feet. The purer the love, the lesser the pride. As a parent of four kids, I've picked four noses, wiped four rumps, cleaned the wax out of eight ears, and seldom did I mind, at least not the noses and the ears. Real love doesn't mind doing the dirty work. It's willing to humble itself, serve others where they need it. And then love does not behave rudely. Love doesn't act in a way that directly insults or embarrasses the person it loves. It puts the dignity and reputation of its spouse or the kids or the church ahead of its own habits. In other words, love minds its manners. It doesn't aggravate the person it loves by behaving rudely. And love does not seek its own. It ultimately cares for the feelings of the other guy ahead of its own concerns. Reminds me of the young bride-to-be who went to purchase material to make her own wedding dress. She asked the clerk at the counter, she wanted the noisiest material available. The clerk thought, that's an odd request. The noisiest material? That is until the young girl explained. She said, my fiance is blind and I want him to hear when I reach the altar so I won't startle him. That's putting someone else ahead of yourself. Love is not provoked. The idea here is that it's not provoked into sin, that it doesn't react inappropriately. And this is my biggest struggle, quite frankly. So often my actions are good and pure until it doesn't go my way and I'm forced to react. Do I continue to show love or do I retaliate in kind? Lose my temper, get ugly or grow bitter. How do you respond when your love isn't reciprocated? Do you keep on loving or do you resort to a lesser method? And love thinks no evil. The New International Version uh, renders this best. It says, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't hold a grudge. It doesn't carry a chip on its shoulders. It doesn't jump to negative conclusions. It thinks the best of those it loves. It gives the benefit of the doubt. There's a tribe in Polynesia where it's customary to hang reminders of your hatred for other people 
from the roof of your hut. You walk in and little symbols of conflict or of grievance or of injustices done to you hang from the ceiling of your house in order to keep the painful memories alive. And we do the same, don't we? Maybe not literally. but We do in our minds. We do in our hearts. We hold on to those grudges. But this isn't love. It's certainly not the love with which our Lord Jesus loved us. Remember His reaction to the people who crucified Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Oh, love is quick to forgive, but it's also willing to stand up for the truth. Real love has a backbone. Recently, a pastor wrote me and asked for some advice on how to minister to a transgendered person who was coming to his church. He said he wanted to strike a balance, show this person the love of God, while at the same time not denying the truth of God. This is what I wrote him back. I don't think trying to strike a balance ever works. If the balance is halfway between two ideals, then all we've done is watered down both points of view. The better approach is to be radical in the grace you show and radical in the truth you teach. Jesus is our great high priest in that he was both faithful and merciful. If you take that approach, there will be some who are uneasy when you show grace. There will be others who are uneasy when you teach truth. I wouldn't worry about either camp that's uneasy. I would just love strong and teach bold. That's how we need to live our lives. We need to love strong and live bold. How can it be love if we're not willing to tell a person the truth? Love strong, teach bold. And then Paul makes an observation about love that to me is so challenging. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice he could have said, Love bears some things and believes some things and hopes some things and endures some things. But no, love bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. As Paul says in verse 8, love never fails. Love never gives up. Love bears all things. Its patience is inexhaustible. Love believes all things. It is the eternal optimist. Love hopes all things. Hey, love is a dreamer. It sees life not just as it is, but as it should be and even can be. And love endures all things. It never stops loving. Love bears with a person's flaws indefinitely. Love believes in his potential indiscriminately. Love hopes in a person's possibilities infinitely. And love endures his hardships intentionally. Love is like a powder keg. It is the strongest catalyst in our lives. Love is the most effective change agent on this planet. Jason Tuskis was a 17-year-old Floridian. He lived in St. Petersburg. Jason was the All-American kid. He was an honor student, an expert swimmer. And he was also an avid scuba diver. Jason loved his parents, and he had a great relationship with his younger brother, Christian. The four of them constituted a loving, tight-knit, happy family. 
One Tuesday, Jason left St. Petersburg and he headed to West Central Florida where he and his friends were going to explore some underwater caves. Jason promised his mom that he would be home for dinner. It was her birthday and the family was headed out that night to celebrate. But Jason never returned. That morning, he got lost in one of these underground, underwater caves and he panicked. He tried to slip through a narrow passage and he got pinned. Couldn't free himself. At some point in the struggle, Jason realized his fate. He took off his yellow oxygen tank, and with his diver's knife, he carved a message into the paint on the cylinder. It read, Mom, Dad, Christian, I love you. Jason never stopped loving his family, even to the point of death. And that could be said of our Lord Jesus. One of my favorite Bible verses is John chapter 13, verse 1. John is prefacing the chapters that lead up to the cross. At first, his comment sounds like just a passing statement. But it sums up the heart of Jesus like no other verse. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were, with, who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Did you hear that? He loved them to the end. These disciples are going to abandon Jesus at the moment of His greatest need. They are going to flee in fear and deny that they even know Him. One of them is even going to collaborate to kill Him. Yet we're told Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus never gave up on love. Think of all that Jesus endured. 39 lashes. Seven-inch iron spikes in his hands and in his feet. Thorns piercing his brow. Blood oozing into his eyes. A javelin thrust between his ribs. The jeers of the crowd. The terrifying rush of sin over his spotless soul. Feelings of isolation from his Father in heaven. The tightly wound shroud. Three days in a wet, cold crib. That huge stone. That's right. Jesus never gave up. Love endures all things. It never, ever gives up. Real love keeps loving to the very end. Actually, Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of love. Sort of fun to go back to verse 6 and read these verses again, this time substituting Jesus for the word love. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. That fits, doesn't it? Hey, but why don't you try to read it one more time? And this time, why don't you substitute your name for the word love? Sandy suffers long. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Let's not go much further. When you put your name into it, does it sound awkward? A little far-fetched? If the folks who know you best... Do they snicker? If so, why? 
Jesus wants us to love like He loves. Our church calendars, on our church calendars, the Thursday before Easter is known as Monday Thursday. The Latin word Monday means day of the mandate. It harkens back to the eve before Jesus' crucifixion. That's when Jesus gave His disciples a new commandment, a new mandate. In John 13, He told them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus has mandated that we adopt love as our mode of operation. The world mocks those who love. Why care about folks who don't care about you? It's better to look out for number one. Nobody else will, but not so among Christians. We've been shown a more excellent way. A Greek writer, he was a secular writer, his name was Lucian. He lived between 120 and 200 A.D. He observed the love and care the early Christians had for one another. And he wrote these words, It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first leader, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are brothers. Has it gotten into our heads? Into our hearts? That we are to love one another? In dealing with people, we should never, ever give up on love. Even when you're tired of extending your love. Even when you're frustrated over it being rejected. Even when you think there's no hope of it ever being reciprocated. Keep on loving. Refuse the shortcuts. Just keep loving them and loving them and loving them. Whether it's an estranged spouse, or whether it's a prodigal child, or whether it's a friend that's gone sideways, no matter what it is, just keep loving them, for love never fails. And if you need proof, here it is. You. You are proof. That you are God's child today is the result of of God's never-failing, always-prevailing love. Even in your rebellion, even though you ran from Him, God kept pursuing you. Listen to what little Dave, age eight, says about love. He says, love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. Take Dave's comment and substitute God for girls, and you got my story. God kept finding me. I ran from his plan. I bucked his will. I stiffened my neck and hardened my heart, insisted on my way. But God kept finding me. There's a famous poem I love. It refers to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. Some of you dog lovers will enjoy this. I mean, He catches our scent. The Holy Spirit catches our scent. He tracks us down. He runs us up a tree or out on a limb. You and I have been treed by the love of God. Yes, there is no doubt. If you're a Christian today, your faith is living proof that God's love never fails. Verse 8, But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. In eternity on heaven's shore, the gifts of the Spirit will no longer be needed. 
A prophetic word will be unnecessary. We'll be able to speak to God face to face. You won't need tongues. You'll be fluent in the languages. And why a word of knowledge? You'll have all truth. Spiritual gifts are for us today. Therefore, an underdog church. Today's church. In us, God has chosen the weak and the foolish. And He's assigned to us a spiritual battle with limited weapons. This is why we need supernatural firepower. But in eternity, the battles will be over. We'll no longer need the spiritual gifts that aided us so well here below. Verse 9 tells us, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now this is the verse that people who are skeptical of spiritual gifts like to use to deny the perpetuity or the continuance of these supernatural gifts. They deny that the gifts remain current. There are people who believe that the supernatural gifts ceased with the first century apostles. They interpret that which is perfect as the completion of the New Testament. The Greek word translated perfect in verse 10 does mean complete. And so the skeptics conclude that when the New Testament canon, the books of the New Testament, were finalized, then God discontinued these supernatural gifts. And I couldn't disagree with them more. For starters, the New Testament was never a complete revelation. It's all that we need to know, but it's all, not all that we would like to know or that there is to know. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul saw stuff in heaven that was unlawful for him to even discuss, let alone write down. And remember the seven thunders of Revelation 10 verse 4. They were heard by John, but he too was prohibited from recording them. My point is, is that that which is perfect can't be a reference to the New Testament canon. No, it speaks to the perfection that we'll enjoy in heaven. And that's when the gifts of the Holy Spirit will cease. When we no longer need them. When we enter into God's glory. For now, spiritual gifts are a huge part of our arsenal. Paul writes in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. This is what every dad says when he goes out to mow his front lawn. First has to pick up all the kids' toys. When I became a man, I put away childish things. This is also the verse that we'll quote when we get to heaven. For one day, we'll reach full maturity. Spiritual adulthood. Today we're struggling, we're growing, we're stretching for the prize. One day we'll reach it. But that doesn't happen completely until we reach heaven. Then and only then will these spiritual gifts cease. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And this too speaks of heaven. Complete knowledge is never a characteristic of this life. In the here and now, we all see dimly. See, mirrors in the ancient world were not like mirrors that we have today. The ancient mirrors were rudimentary. They were nothing but polished metals. The city of Corinth was actually famous for a bronze mirror that it manufactured. Mirrors today are high def. 
1080p compared to the fuzzy, blurry, grainy images seen in ancient mirrors. And even though we've come a long way in mirror manufacturing, there's no such thing as spiritual high def. Until you get to heaven, the reception is always going to be a little bit fuzzy. If we had 20-20 knowledge, we wouldn't have to walk by faith, would we? But we don't, and thus we do. When a church today builds a sanctuary, architects are careful to optimize all of the sight lines. It doesn't matter where you're sitting in the room. You can see all that's going on up front. There's not a bad view in the house. But it's interesting, the Reformation architects of the great cathedrals in Europe, they had the opposite idea. They deliberately created worship venues where your view was blocked by rail perhaps, or maybe a column, or maybe an awkward, tricky angle where you couldn't see everything. And it was a reminder that there are some things about God that are hidden from us. That no one knows all there is to know about God. That we all worship God from a limited vantage point. That means we walk by faith, not by sight. One Bible commentator I read suggested that if we were able to see clearly, exactly, now, as we will see in glory, that we wouldn't be able to handle all that we see. For one, our sinfulness would be too depressing. Some of us would completely despair and just give up. God's glory would be more than our minds could process. His righteousness and holiness would strike terror in our hearts. We'd be afraid to approach Him, perhaps. On the other hand, if we just saw how much He loved us, we'd be so captivated with His love, we wouldn't be able to focus on anything else. And if we saw heaven as is, who would want to stay here? We'd probably want to abandon our God-given mission and throw ourselves in front of a car. Or maybe eat chili cheese fries for every meal. You get there a little slower, but you still get there. Just to get to the heavenly shore quicker. See, God has a reason for our limited vantage point, for this time of seeing dimly. For For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And that is what we're longing for, is it not? This is the brightest attraction in heaven. Not the golden streets or the pearly gates. We'll see Him. In that day, we'll know our Lord Jesus just as He knows us now. And in that first instant, all our longings, all our dreams, all our ambitions, all our thirsts and hungers will be satisfied. Chapter 13 closes. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love. God's three musketeers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. All three virtues, faith, hope, and love, get put into practice in a Christian's life. We work, having faith that God will bless our efforts. We labor, not to earn God's favor, but to say thanks to Him for the grace He's shown us. We hope for a better life. And in the meantime, we patiently endure the refining trials. Faith, hope, love. They all play a part. All three play a role in this life. 
But in eternity, faith and hope will no longer be needed. In heaven, we'll walk by sight and not by faith. All our hopes will be fulfilled. In heaven, all that's left is love. God's love for us, our love for Him, and our love for each other. That's why the greatest of these is love. When time fades into eternity, love will reign supreme. And in the meantime, it is still the more excellent way. Don't resort to lesser methods. Never give up on love.